a little old lady lived all by herself with a table and chairs and a jug on the shelf. Uh, a wise old man heard her grumble and grouse. There's not enough room in my house. Wise old man, when you help me, please. My house is... Thank you very much. The parents, the parents in the group know it. The rest of you are like, Ben has momentarily lost his mind. Um, that is the beginning to one of the great pieces of literature of our time, the Julia Donaldson book, uh, A Squash and a Squeeze. Now, A Squash and a Squeeze is a great book. It's a book about uh, a woman who whinges that her house is too small. Uh, and she goes to a wise old man uh, and says to him, I've got this problem, my house is too small, what should I do about it? And he, he tells her that she should take in a variety of animals to live in her house with her. So first a hen, uh, which flaps round the room, knocking over the jug, um, uh, and then, uh, uh, what's the order? Maybe a pig, and then maybe a goat, and then maybe a cow. I think they're the four, anyway. But taking a variety of animals, getting bigger and bigger into her house. Uh, and each time she says, but all you've done is made it worse. My house was tiny before, and now it's even smaller because I've got all these animals in. Until right at the end, he says, well, get rid of them all. Push them all out. And as she gets rid of all the animals in the house, what does she realise? She realises her house, her house is actually enormous. Because having got used to having so much less space, now she understands how big her house was. It's a story, a kid's story, told in a, a Julia Donaldson kind of way, uh, designed to communicate one idea. And the idea is that it's hard sometimes to appreciate things until you don't have them anymore, until they're taken away. Or, or in the words of Joni Mitchell, don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? <laughs> like, like that, that's the idea. Now, now just in that, in that little starting point, we have... We have three different ways of communicating the same idea. We have a statement. The statement is, it's sometimes hard to appreciate things until they're taken away. It's a sentence. We can probably understand the words in that sentence. If you can't understand the words in that sentence, you're not in for a great next half hour. Um, but that, that's, we get it. It's a sentence. So why do we need anything else? Like why do we need a squash and a squeeze? Why do we need... Joni Mitchell singing. What, we also have the story of an old woman who takes animals into her house. But it, it says the same thing, just using more words. We have a song about us paving paradise and realizing too late what we've lost. Like, why do we have, why do we just have the statement? Why have the statement and the story and the song and any number of other ways all designed just to communicate that one same idea? Now, now you might be sat here and you might, like me, love a squash and a squeeze. Or you might be like, I don't know what it is and you haven't sold it to me. You might, you might really like Joni Mitchell. You might, it might be, she, she might be someone who you listen to in your spare time. Or you might have never heard of her and go, who is this Joni Mitchell that you're talking about? You might agree with the statement that sometimes it's hard to appreciate things until they're taken away without having ever read a squash and a squeeze or listened to Joni Mitchell. So why, why, do we, why don't we just say it and then move on? Well, well, the reason we don't do that, the reason we tell things in stories is because we engage with stories and songs in a different way to the way that we engage with statements. For a start, the ideas communicate more slowly. 
So if I just say the statement and then move on, we've all moved on to the next thing. None of us are still thinking about that idea. But if you tell the, the same idea through a story, it slows you down. It gives you an opportunity to meditate on it, to think about what that might mean, about what that might look like in your life. As you're reading the story and it's slowly unveiling what's going on, you start to think, oh, where might I have been guilty of that? Where might I have been guilty of complaining about things when actually I've got so much? We, We tell things in songs because songs engage our emotions in a different way. As we, as we listen to the song, we feel the truths as well as just understanding them. The story and the song also have the advantage of entertaining us. They, they communicate a truth, but they also entertain us. So we're much more likely to listen to the song numerous times than we are to listen to someone just saying over and over again, Sometimes you don't realize what you've got until it's taken away. Like there's a limit to how many times I could listen to someone saying that before I'd be like, okay, I I need something different. But we might listen to that song a hundred times, a thousand times. My guess is that some of us have. So so we, we tell stories in different ways because we engage with them differently. There isn't just a one way to communicate truths. There's multiple different ways to communicate the same truths which impact us in different ways. Now, now the reason I wanted to start there is because that's kind of what we have going on here in Daniel 7. I'm going to read it in a minute for us. Because what we have going on here in in Daniel 7 is we have this dramatic shift. If you've been here for the last six weeks, you have been on this story where we've been unpacking what's been going on in Daniel's life. After he was uh, kidnapped out of his homeland, taken to the land of Babylon as a slave, and all the adventures that he got in there. It's been this kind of amazing story of rescues and miracles and boldness and courage. And you just read it and you feel like you just have so much admiration for him and for his friends and for what's going on there. That's what we've had in these chapters one to six. But then in chapter seven, it completely changes. We move away from the historical narrative of chapters one to six and we move into these apocalyptic visions of chapter 7 to the end of the book. The great stories of Daniel in the lion's den, the fiery furnace, they are no more. They are behind us. And ahead of us, what we have is an array of pretty wild dreams with, it will be fair to say, some slightly ambiguous interpretations. Now, now some people, perhaps some of you in this room, love chapter 7 onwards. They love trying to work out what they're about. The whole, there's a whole range of speculation which people will spend hours and weeks and months and years delving into, some of which are healthy, some of which it's fair to say are less so. But some people love all that. They love getting into it, wrestling with it, thinking about it, speculating about what these dreams mean, about what they might point to. But here's what I want you to understand right at the start, before we even read the the first of these visions. Here's what I want you to understand. The great truth being communicated by the stories of Daniel 1 to 6 is exactly the same as the great truth that's being communicated through chapter 7 to 12. Daniel hasn't suddenly, in the middle of his books, been like, oh, and I want to tell you about something different. 
He's telling you about the same thing, just in a different way. It, it's the, it's the, I don't know, yellow taxi to squash and a squeeze. It's the different way of telling the same truth. And the great truth Daniel wants his readers to understand is this. Okay, I just want you to have this in your head because this is going to be key to us understanding everything that's happened in the book of Daniel so far, everything that's going to happen going forward. This is the great truth that Daniel's wanting to teach us. That in the midst of human evil, of which there is plenty, in the midst of human opposition to God's people, which is never far away, in amongst all of the power that we see around us, there is a God who remains in control and whose kingdom will ultimately prevail. That's the central truth of the book of Daniel. That's the truth he's wanted us to understand as he's told the story of his life, as he's unpicked all of the things that happened throughout his life. He's, he's told us those things so that we understand one thing. There is a God who is in control, who sits above even the most powerful men, even the most evil empires. There is a God who sits above all those things. He wanted to tell us that from the story of his life. And now he wants to tell us the same thing, but from these dreams, these visions that he had. If you think about everything we've seen so far, about his life in Babylon, we've seen God humbling rulers, we've seen God saving his people, we've seen God demonstrating again and again his power and his authority over the most powerful men in the world at that time. That's what he's told so far. And now he's going to tell us the same thing, but through dreams and visions. The question is, why bother? Like, why bother? We've already got it. Like we've, we've, we've done Daniel 1 to 6. Why bother with 7 to 12 if all he's trying to do is tell us the same thing? Like, I got it. I got, I've read the stories. I've understood what's going on. You've said it loads of times. Why now tell it in this different way with all these visions and dreams? Here, here's, here's the important thing we need to understand. The spectacle of these dreams and visions is the important bit. The spectacle. They're visions, which means what? It means that they're seen. They're designed to be seen. Now, now we're not dreaming the dreams, so we can't see them. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be relying on your imagination here, which for some of you will be a challenge and for others, not so much. But that's the point. The, they're visions. You see, we're not just told God is in control, like we were right at the start of Daniel, Daniel 1 verse 2, where he says God handed them over. He tells us right at the start God's in control of everything that's going on. But here we're not just told it. We're given this image of his power and rule, which is designed to capture your imagination. To invite you to dwell on it. I want you to be swept away by this scene as it's read. And what we're going to see is we move from scene to scene quickly. As the, as the pace and visions progress at greater and greater speed until it's finally consumed by this great vision of the ancient of days the eternal God and the son of man, the true human who is given ultimate authority. So let's get into it, shall we? Let's try and read it. Let's try to imagine. That's the best thing you can do. As I'm reading this, the best thing you can do is try to imagine what is being read. Whatever is going to help you do that, I'm encouraging you to do it. You know, if closing your eyes helps you to imagine, do that. 
Try not to fall asleep. But but do that if, if closing your eyes will help. If, if like sketch, writing on a piece of paper, drawing on a piece of paper, whatever it is that will help you visualize this scene. Because the whole point of it is in you seeing it. Like That's why it's given to us, to be seen. So I'm going to read it. And I'm just inviting you just to sit back and try and visualize what's going on here. So let me start uh, at the beginning of Daniel 7. Um, Page 893 on the Bibles around you. I'm going to read the whole chapter. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. And visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the other, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back, it had four wings like those of a bird. The beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the book was opened. Then, I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, 
was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. But then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws. The beast that pushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell. The horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favour of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on the earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times and and half a time. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then... The sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. There you go. That's that's the vision. Chapter 7 of Daniel. We've had this gear shift. Let, 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 let me just spend a few minutes, I'm not going to spend ages, just helping us think a little bit about what we're meant to do with this imagery. As you were, as you were sat there, hopefully trying to stay with it, trying to imagine it, trying to visualise it, I wonder how you felt as that was going on. Uh, specifically, as you were reading those first nine, eight, nine verses, kind of what, what sense did you get during that bit of the vision? For me... As I read it, the central feeling is this slight sense of chaos. Because Daniel starts describing his vision, but it's almost like he's struggling to keep up. First, there's a lion with the wings of an eagle, and then there's a bear, and then there's a multi-headed flying leopard, and then this fourth beast with all these horns, and some horns fall off, and some return. Uh, It's frantic. Just as soon as you've begun to visualize one, the next one... It is already there. That's one of the great challenges as you're trying to visualize it, isn't it? You get like a couple of verses about a lion and suddenly you're talking about a bear and you're like, I haven't quite got the lion in my head yet and I'm already moving on to the bear. Now, I want to suggest that that sense is deliberate. It's deliberate. It's how we're meant to feel because we're told at the start that the context of this is the winds of heaven churning up the sea. 
That, that's the kind of central idea that starts this all, this all off. And the sea in the Bible is often used as a symbol of chaos and danger. That's why in Revelation, when the new heavens and new earth are described, we're told that there is no sea. It's not because necessarily there won't be a sea. It's because it's saying there will not be that chaos, that disorder that the sea kind of symbolized. And so what we actually have here in this vision is this stormy, slightly dangerous, slightly chaotic, slightly frantic scene with these beasts coming and going almost before you've had time to catch your breath. It feels like the whole scene is wild and out of control. Now you can see how Daniel might have felt that that was a bit what his life was like. You could, you could see why Daniel might feel like his life is a, is a bit wild and a little bit out of control. As a, as a young boy, young man, kidnapped taken out of his homeland into Babylon. Uh, And then during his time in Babylon, empires coming, empires going, one king being overthrown, another one coming to follow him. One minute, he's raised up and given the riches of the nation. The next minute, he's threatened with death and thrown into a lion's den. Uh, And he, he looks at his life and he just thinks, my life just feels out of control. All these things coming and going all the time, struggling to keep up, struggling to know where does he fit into this story? What's going on? It would be easy for Daniel to feel like events have overtaken him. Like it's just one thing after another with never a chance to regroup or even think. Now, our circumstances are not the same as Daniel's. It's not, Daniel's story is not our story. But isn't, isn't that how you often feel? Genuinely, the, the amount of conversations I've had, even recently with people where they're saying to me, I just feel like my life is out of control. Like events are too much for me. Like things just keep happening one after another. And I I haven't had time to process one before the next thing's happened. And then there's another and there's another. And my life just feels like this frantic mess, never able to keep up with it. More than that, one of the, the conversation I often have is not necessarily that my life feels like that, but that I feel like that. I feel out of control. My decisions feel erratic. I feel like I just keep making mistakes. I, I move from one impulsive decision to the next impulsive decision, and it's all moving so fast, and I'm struggling to keep up with it. If we do ever stop for a minute, We look back at our life and we just think, what a mess. How did I end up here? Why did I do that? What was I thinking? See, that's the scene. This frantic, ever-changing world where, where everything's moving so fast. It all just seems so chaotic. But into this frantic, tumultuous scene steps another figure And that, this bit of the vision, is markedly different. Look at verse 9. In verse 9, we're introduced to this figure. The Ancient of Days. I mean, his very name just speaks of stability. The Ancient of Days, the one who has always been here. He doesn't change. He's not constantly coming and going. He's not like these beasts who pop up and then are gone, replaced by the next one. He's the Ancient of Days, the one, the permanent one. He moves in this vision at an entirely different pace to the rest of the vision. He's not rushing about. 
trying to keep up. No, what's the, what's the image? He enters the scene. He walks into his courtroom. He prepares his thrones. He sits himself down. He calls his court to him and he opens the books. He's not going to be rushed. He's not constantly worried about how is he going to keep up with all these changing events, all this mess that's going on beneath him. No. It's all very measured. It's all very calm. It's all very in control. And led into his presence is this son of man. He was given authority and dominion over all peoples and nations. You see, the pace slows and Daniel sees the awesome calmness of God as he declares his authority amidst all the frantic scrabbling that's going on beneath him. If you've got the vision in your head, it's almost like you've got the throne room here, calm, in control, measured, whilst beneath him there's this endless changing scene. You see, this is the truth that Daniel wants us to get to. This is what Daniel wants you to understand, wants me to understand. No matter how frantic things look, no matter how out of control your circumstances or your life might feel, nothing is ever truly out of control. God sits above it all and he remains very much in control. That is the belief that drove Daniel's entire life. Daniel prayed to God three times a day, we're told. Why did he do that? Well, he did it because he believed that God was the only one truly in control. And so that talking to him was the best thing he could do. What else do we know about Daniel's life? We know that when faced with impossible problems, like when Nebuchadnezzar came to him and said, I want you to interpret a dream that I'm not going to tell you, and if you don't, I'm going to kill you. His first response was to ask God to interpret the dream, to tell him the dream and interpret it for him. Why? Why was that his first response? Why wasn't he quickly fleeing the country? Because he believed that God was in control and so God could reveal it to him. When Daniel was threatened with the lion's den, you know, being thrown into this, this den of lions, almost certain death if he didn't stop praying what was it that made him willing to risk his own life by disobeying the king well surely it was a belief that no matter what the king intended there was an authority that sat above him that he could trust there was a god who sat above the king and above his intentions and that he could trust him with his circumstances. That was the theological underpinning of Daniel's life. That's what made it possible for him to be faithful to God, even when he was living in a society which didn't know God and was at times actively hostile to him. We started the series week one by saying, in the book of Daniel, what we want to learn is we want to learn how do we faithfully live for, serve and enjoy God in a culture which doesn't know that God doesn't recognize him and is sometimes actively opposed to him? How do we know and enjoy Jesus in a culture with radically different values and beliefs? Here's the starting point. It starts with your theology. It starts with what you believe about God. 
It's only the belief that God remains in control of this world that he created that will make you able to, I mean, do one of any host of things. Make you able to obey him even when you think obeying him will end up badly. That will make you able to pray to him even when your life is really busy. That will make you able to trust him even when your life feels out of control. That will make you able to pursue change in your life even when that change feels too difficult. That will make it possible for you to prioritize him even when the world around you is calling on you to prioritize so many other things. That's the theological underpinning of it. Is there a God and does he sit above all of those things? If you don't believe that, it's going to be incredibly difficult for you to live for that God in a culture which has radically different values and beliefs. It starts with your theology. It starts with what do you actually believe about God. I'm going to give you some examples. Maybe you're sat here today and you're not a Christian. You're here. Maybe you're here because you're just interested and want to see what, what it is we talk about. Maybe you're here because you come every week, you've kind of heard a lot about Jesus, you've toyed with the idea of following him, but you never actually have. Maybe you've even asked him to forgive you a few times, but when it's come to actually living your life for him, you've never really been willing to do that. Now, there might be a variety of reasons why that's where you are. Maybe you're worried about what your friends and family might think if you became a Christian. You're worried that they'll be upset with you. Or, or maybe the opposite. Maybe you're worried that they'll go, oh, I told you so. Um, like, I don't know, whatever it is. But you're worried about how people might react. Maybe it's not that. Maybe you're just unwilling to give up your time to really follow Jesus and prioritize the things he calls on you to prioritize. You look at it and you're like, I'm just not willing to prioritize church and generosity and forgiveness and all that stuff. It's just too big a cost. It, it, you know, imagine you've got someone, it might be you, who's not a Christian, toying with the idea what is it that's going to change that? Like, what is it that would actually make a difference? It would actually make you go, oh, I am actually willing to give up my time and my freedom to follow Jesus. What is it that would convince you that you were willing to risk how people might react to you becoming a Christian to actually follow Jesus? Uh, well, surely one of the things is to believe that Jesus himself actually rules over this world. It surely would take that. You'd have to start at least by believing that. A belief that he is in control, and so you can therefore trust him with how your family might react, with what your life would look like if you prioritise different things. If, if, you are, if that's you here today, if you're someone here who, you know, thinking about Jesus, considering him, never really come to follow him, worried about what it might mean, I don't know, here, here's my encouragement for you. You might be scared of the impact that following Jesus would have on your life. You might be worried about how people react. You might find it impossible to imagine what your life would look like if you really started following him. But here's the truth that I think Daniel 7 says we can be certain of, and that is that you can trust Jesus with that. I don't know what it'll look like. I don't know how your friends and family will react. I don't know how it will impact your life. I don't know the hardships that you might face if you truly follow Jesus. I know there'll be some because there's some for everyone. But what I do know is that if Daniel 7 is true, that Jesus sits above all of the chaos which you fear would break loose, that Jesus sits on his throne, and so you can trust him with those things, whatever may, they might turn out to be. But 
I mean, let's be clear. This applies as much to any of us here today who are Christians as it does to those who are not. Last night, we had our first uh, marriage course um, here. Uh, I, I really enjoyed being here um, with a, a group of married uh, couples from the church. I think uh, there were 13 married couples here. We had a really great time together. We ate together. We thought about how we build the kind of marriages that God calls us to here in Grace Church. And one of the things I was encouraging people to do last night was take whatever the first step is to improving your marriage. Like whatever that is, whatever that first step that would actually improve your marriage, actually take it. But what I was aware of as I was saying that is that there'll be a whole lot of people who hear that and think, I could never take that step. It's just too hard. I could never open up to my spouse about that thing. She'd never talk to me again. I could never go and talk to another married couple within Grace Church about my marriage because I just wouldn't dare. What, what would they think of me? What would I say? It just feels too difficult. What truth is it that's going to enable those of us who sat there last night thinking, there's a step I need to take, but it's just too hard. What is it that would enable us to take that step? Well, I think Daniel 7 could help the belief that Jesus is on the throne and that because of that, genuine change is possible. However chaotic your marriage might feel, however impossible improvement might seem, Jesus sits above the chaos, above all the obstacles, and because of that, we believe that our marriages actually can be better. Now, don't hear me wrong. There will still be some chaos Like, the chaos doesn't go away from this vision. It's still happening. You know, the Ancient of Days is on his throne and the beasts are there doing their thing. There will still be some difficult decisions to make. But unless you believe that Jesus sits on the throne and that he truly has authority over this world, you will likely never face the difficult conversations you need to have, never take the first step you need to take. Let me give you one more. Maybe neither of those are you. Maybe you're like, okay, I am a Christian, but I wasn't at your marriage course last night. I wasn't invited. Um, uh, or maybe I'm just unmarried. Uh, and maybe the situation you're in is I'm a Christian, I'm unmarried, but I'm finding it hard to live for Jesus as a single person. Maybe you're obsessed with getting married and it dominates all of your life. Maybe you're worried that being a Christian means that you'll be single all of your days. Uh, And so you're tempted to enter into unhealthy relationships or a relationship that God says you shouldn't. Maybe you have no desire not to be single. Maybe you're like, I'm very happy being single, but you're just resentful of the married folk around you. What, What will help you to keep honouring God in your singleness? What will enable you to resist the temptation of inappropriate relationships or bitterness or anger? Again, surely starts with a belief that Jesus sits on the throne and he will not allow your singleness to be wasted. That your singleness may be hard and there may be all kinds of brokenness in it, but that ultimately it is not outside of Jesus' control. That's the central theology of Daniel's life. That's what this vision, what this image is meant to help us recognize and begin to believe and begin to feel the weight of. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap it up here. I was at a concert on Wednesday night. And, and in it, one of the, one of the singers, uh, she was the support act, 
um, was talking about how hard it is to live in a world where there's so much darkness all around us. She was saying, you know, you look around the world and it's easy just to feel unsettled. There's wars and there's violence and there's political turbulence and there's economic uncertainty. And, and the world just feels a, a stressful and upsetting place for many of us. And she was saying, you know, how, how do we do art in that world? How do we try to create things of beauty in, in that context? But I guess for many of us, it's not just that the world feels like that. It's that our lives feel a bit like that. Sometimes we, at least I know I do, we, we just feel bombarded by the brokenness around us. We feel like we're under siege. Marriage breakdowns, illnesses, financial worries, mental health problems, destructive lifestyles. Uh, and at times with all that around us, with all that around me, I, I struggle to find peace in that. I would have always considered myself someone who's relatively easygoing, relatively laid back, can kind of take things as they come. But I, I found myself over the past few years uh, awake more and more often in those dark moments of the night, sleeplessly running over so much of the brokenness that's around me, with these thoughts just swirling around my head Often my mind resembles Daniel 7. I mean, <laughs> within reason. There's, there's, fewer, there's fewer like flying lions and stuff. But, uh, but, uh, but, you know, you get the same idea. You get the idea of those chaotic flow of different thoughts, different risks, different darknesses, different stresses, different sadnesses, different failures, just running around my mind. And it feels out of control. I don't know how to turn it off. I don't know how to go back to sleep. I find myself lying in bed, longing for peace. Just longing for some tranquility. Wishing there was a button I could switch to turn my brain off. Longing for that tranquility amidst the storm, for some stability amongst the churning seer. And here's what I found. The more I fix my eyes on the Ancient of Days, sitting on his throne, the more peace I found. The more I'm able to see the Son of Man calling all people to come to him and find rest for their weary souls, the more peace I find. The more I'm able to take all the churn and all the brokenness and all the chaos to God in prayer and trust that he is the one who sits above it, the more peace I've found. I've actually found more than that. i found the better I sleep. So as we end, uh, we're going to sing. Uh, and as we sing, this is all I want us to do. I want us to, in these songs, get a glimpse of the Ancient of Days. Sitting on his throne. 
seeing that awesome God and allowing Daniel's vision of a God like that to bring the peace that I think many of us are actually looking for. I'm going to pray while I pray the band can come up and then we'll sing.